Greetings, fellow Who Gazers, and welcome back to Doctor Literature, the podcast taking you through the world of the Target novelizations in publication order. My name is Jason, and I'm your host on this journey, this very long journey. A couple of program notes. Number one, next week there will be a change, a significant change to the distribution of this show. If you like the show, you should tune in next week and find out about it. Could I be any more cryptic? If you like this show, tune in next week to find out about the future of this show. Another programming note, thanks to Chartable, I have now learned that I am currently the number 24 rated sci-fi podcast in the country of France. Thank you. A couple of other programming notes. I was recently on a Trap 1 panel discussing the vinyl release of the Hartnell episode, The Celestial Toymaker. If there is a William Hartnell story to discuss, I am there to talk about it usually on Trap 1, and I will link to that in the show notes. My guest this week is Bill Evenson, a very funny man. If you listen to Reality Bomb, and I hope you do, you've heard Bill's voice in almost every episode. When Bill and I talk, we often go long. I try to keep my conversations on the show to about an hour at a time, and with talking to Bill, that's a near impossibility. I think we were online for the better part of two hours and recorded for about 90 minutes. I have made a couple of trims just in order to get this thing down to a manageable size, particularly when playing the game 20 Questions. I had to delete a lot of funny material just to make my uh, time slot for the week. I hope that the cuts are not too evident, uh, but they are there. Bill is here this week to discuss Ian Martyr's second book, the novelization of the Santaran Experiment. Ian Martyr's first book, The Ark in Space, was covered on this program by Stacy Smith, and Stacy and Bill are co-authors, and we'll discuss that a little bit later in the program. Bill and I also discussed Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad. Later the same day of that conversation, I came to my pilgrimage, the episode Orphan 55, and I am embarrassed that I forgot to discuss with Bill that Orphan 55 is Doctor Who's crossover point with the Breaking Bad Better Call Saul universe via the character of Lydia, played by Laura Fraser. She was a memorable villain in the Better Call Saul Breaking Bad series, and she plays a slightly less terrible villain in Orphan 55. Earlier this week, I posted the cover illustration to Doctor Who and the Santaran Experiment on Twitter, and I got some pretty terrific reactions to that. I will just read through some of the highlights of those now. It's an amazing cover by Roy Nipe, and it really inspired my Twitter audience, and here's what they said about it. From Darth Egregious at M. Stone Hennessy, an epic cover. This story will always hold a place in my heart as the first Doctor Who episode I ever saw. Plutocrat at Lewis Baston 5. You've heard Lewis on this show talking about Doctor Who and the Dinosaur Invasion. It is indeed a great cover. It evokes the cold and desolate setting for me. And this is Dave from the Doctor Who Show at David underscore Kitchen underscore. As a kid, I legit assumed there was a giant Santaran in this story, based on the cover. See also the giant Quark from the Dominators. Thanks for listening, Dave. And yes, we are going to be discussing the giant size of Steyr a little bit later in the program. Ian, not the Hurricane Clark, at Ian J. Clark. In my mind, it's always been a giant 
or a gigantic stone Santeran statue. I adore that cover painting. Ian, not the hurricane. Hurricane Ian devastated uh, large portions of central Florida this week. Uh, my entire family, except for me and my, my own wife and kid, are in Florida. They were fortunately not affected by the storm. Many, many other people were, and my condolences go out. Richard Starkings, at Rich Starkings, my favorite of all the covers. Dr. Sinister, at Dread Sinister, deserves to be the fifth head on Mount Rushmore. I definitely agree with that. No, not the Mind Probe, at Dr. Oho. Ooh, that's one of my top target novels, an absolute belter. Not that I need an excuse to reread it, but you've just given me one. Brian Burkhart, at Brian Burkhart. He's a good friend of mine from the convention circuit. As a kid, I thought the doctor was standing in front of a huge statue. Jeff in Heaven, at Gallifrey Gothic. He is a co-host on Gallifrey's Most Wanted, as I've mentioned, one of my favorite podcasts. Jeff writes, my favorite target novel. I read this on holiday in Scotland when I was about 12 or 13, and the bleak, empty landscape was the perfect backdrop to this. Best cover, too. Really good reactions to that cover. Just a really evocative cover. It is uh, Tom Baker in his uh, on-location outfit holding a gigantic branch, standing in front of a shadowy image of a gigantic Santaran and helmet against a blue, cloudy sky. The Doctor Who logo is in blue, outlined in black and white. Just an amazing, amazing cover. I, of course, have a link to it in the podcast feed. Please take a look. If you don't have the book, definitely look for a second-hand copy. Those are the show notes for this week. There's some listener email that I will push to next week because we are starting to run a little bit long. Uh, I will say that next week is Doctor Who and the Hand of Fear. I do not yet have a guest lined up for that. I've made several overtures. Unfortunately, nothing has worked out. If you have any ideas, please at me. Coming up next, my interview with Bill Evenson. Let's get to it. joined for the second time by one of the funniest people I know, and we are here today to talk about the least funny book that Target ever put out. Bill, how on earth did you wind up talking about this book rather than one of the funny ones like Rebos Operation or the Romans or the Gunfighters? How do you wind up with such a grim, dystopian, nightmarish book? Yep. No, I mean, it's a very good question. I think... What you know, the answer really is that behind the scenes, I'm a very dark, depressed, uh, unstable fella, and I and I, <laughs> and I reach out and I want these uh, off. No, it's uh, it's an interesting. Uh, I thought I thought I was I did the Web of Fear, right? Yeah, I did Web of Fear for, uh, on your show, and it was about twelve hundred pages. Is that right? Uh, it was. 1200 pages but that was volume one volume two was 900 pages okay okay and how long is uh Santaran experiment the Santaran experiment is about as long as dance to the music of time so i think that's seven volumes 
<laughs> yes, exactly. That was what I thought. That was the thing that attracted me to it was it's a two episode story and that's a pretty rare thing in classic Doctor Who. And yeah, Ian Martyr uh, not only stretched it out, but he was on the show. So he was in this episode. So fascinated to find out how he's going to take two episodes and turn it into yeah, as you say, uh, the works of, um, I don't know, <laughs> the works of Proust. Proust. Yes. Or uh, J.B. Priestley or Stephen R. Donaldson or anybody else who did a multi-book cycle. There you go. That was the thing that led, that drew me to it. We have a tradition on Doctor Who literature where we talk about anything but the book for a good 10 or 20 minutes. So I want to circle back and talk about you. So we spoke last time about the Frankenstein Minute podcast. And just to do a check, what movie and minute are you up to this week? Uh, let's see. Um, it takes so long to get through it. What, what, when will this air? When will this drop? As the kids Two say. days from now, in other words, uh, the first Sunday in October. Okay, then uh, I then I know the answer. We're on minute sixty-eight of *Son of Frankenstein*, starring Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi. Oh, it's the only, uh, yeah, it's the only film in the Frankenstein series that has that. It's got both of them. When Karina Longworth did her series on Bella and Boris last year, she spent mm-hmm. a little bit of time on that movie, but I've forgotten everything she said. Mm-hmm. It's the, well, I was about to say it's the best one, but I, I don't think it is, actually. They, they made some really great movies together. If you're, if you're new to classic horror or to universal horror, whatever you want to call it, universal studios horror, um, it, it's, it's, a, it's interesting to watch the films just, there's a guy, uh, Greg Mank wrote a book just that covers the six or seven films that they did together. Um, they're all, they're all really, well, they're not all, but there's some really good classic films in there, I guess is what I'm saying. And Son of Frankenstein is probably Bela Lugosi's best performance. That is, uh, you know, controversial to some because he was of course, Dracula in the movie Dracula, but uh, I consider his role in this film as Igor uh, to be better than his. And that's right. I'm standing up. I'm making a stand. Let the let the t- tomatoes be thrown. But it's a really <laughs> no. It's really good. Lugosi steals the film. Well, October starts tomorrow, so I will try and get through as many of the Universal horrors as I can. But. Nice. Related to that, you confused me a moment ago because you were holding up a T-shirt that says House of Dracula at the exact moment you were saying Son of Frankenstein. Yep, that sounds about right. <laughs> that sounds like something I would do. Um, yeah, Son of Frankenstein is the third film in the series, and House of Dracula is the seventh film in the series. So yeah, House of Dracula is a sequel to Son of Frankenstein. But I don't think... I was going to say it doesn't have anybody from that film, but it does have Lionel Atwell. Oh, who am I looking at? What's going on? Why is someone attacking you? That is Smudge. Smudge is uh, one of my two podcasts, and Smudge is the more aggressive <laughs> podcast. Okay. I was doing a recording with Lewis Baston last year. He wrote the Black Archive for Doctor Who and the Sunmakers. 
and we have this very deep and involved discussion about the politics of Doctor Who. And as we're really deep into the weeds, Smudge, with unerring accuracy, manages to press the power button on the laptop. <laughs> and the screen went dark. And it was about five minutes before I could get back in. So there's five minutes of recording, which is just silence because Smudge had turned my computer off. But the program was still running in the background. And did you leave it? Do listeners listen to five minutes of silence? Is that part of the appeal? Or do you do you cut that out? I have occasionally left in amusing audio flubs just to embarrass mm. myself. But that one I was very careful to <laughs> trim and work around so that you would never know it happened. Yeah, I don't blame you. I don't blame you. You see, the audience doesn't see, because you and I can see each other, so I can see that you are in a blue recording studio studio with classic comic covers framed against your wall. But confusingly, you're wearing a blue shirt, so I can't tell where you end and the wall begins. Can you see that one? You can't really. It's Doctor Who. I see Doctor Who, and it says Lost uh-huh. in Time and Space. Now, is that one of the Titans, or is that one of the 1980s Marvels? I have to think it's one of the 80s Marvels. It literally looks like that. And every it it's part of a set that's mostly Marvel. Like, you look over here, that's... Well, that's just the, Star- the Roy Thomas Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, but there's Marvel, and then you can probably see another DC right here. Actually, there's a fair amount of DCs in here, aren't there? Yeah, you have the Joker on one wall facing all the Marvels. I'll tell you that... What's interesting about the 1980s Marvel run is they ran about two full years worth of monthly Doctor Who comics, and the upper left-hand corner is the TARDIS. That was the the Marvel symbol, but in each successive issue, the TARDIS was slowly dematerializing. So if you stack all 23 issues and flip to the upper left-hand corner, you'll see the TARDIS take off and land. Cool. This one doesn't have any of that, so it might not be that. It might just be a thing they made up. Uh... Also, the logo here and over here, if you can see that, is the um, Pertwee slash McGann logo. So place that. Good luck. Was that was that on the comics? No, Marvel used the Tom Baker logo for the first like 18 or 19 issues. And then, because they were using the DWM comic, and then they were putting in all sorts of ancillary material. So when Peter Davison took over with the Tides of Time, they switched to the Neon Tube logo. Now, the very first issue I got of the Marvel Doctor Who comic was the Stockbridge Horror. And the letters page was full of people angry that they had switched the logo from the neon uh, to the Neon Tube. It's a very interesting snapshot of American fandom circa 1986. This was the hill they chose to die on. Their Doctor <laughs> Who comic did not need to have the neon tube logo. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, th- I think judging by how you're describing it, you would agree. It, it seems pretty uh, frivolous. It seems pretty uh, superfluous. It doesn't seem like an important thing to bother to write in about. But uh, in, in the 80s, yeah. That's a big deal. That was a big deal. Switching from, and you're saying switching from the, uh, what we call the diamond logo, right? Right. That's, that's the word I was looking for. Yes. At my age, yeah. I can't remember these things anymore, but yeah, the diamond <laughs> logo. Yeah. That diamond logo though. I mean, that's, that's very iconic for Doctor Who fans. Maybe, maybe more so for American fans. Uh, you know, as that's the time period when Doctor Who was on, so that was on TV. You know what I mean? So yeah, that was a big deal. 
I have a preference. I don't know if you can tell, but I'm more of a diamond logo. Although I do, those are probably two, two of my favorites, though. I had come in with Peter Davison because I started with my PBS station with Time Flight. So for me, it was the... Hey, I'm sorry. That's great. Go ahead. <laughs> you have to wonder how I became a fan if that was my Yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah. It's always a good icebreaker at conventions. So how long have you been a fan? I became a fan in 1985 with, 1984 with Time Flight. What's your story? It's a great icebreaker because everybody is like taken aback and they look impressed and awed that that was my first story. You know, time flight has a lot. I mean, we're not here to talk about time flight, but speaking of time flight, it actually has a lot going for it. It's it it it's if you just look at it on paper, it, it seems like it should be pretty great. Um, they've got the Concorde. They've got you know they've got a. It's it's not a bad story. It's not a bad idea. It's just amazingly poorly executed in every way. Other than that, it's one of my favorites. The novelization by Peter Grimway, the author, is very, very funny. He was a very funny writer, and his three novelizations are all terrific. It's just going to be about almost another year before I get to them, because this is book 45, and he doesn't come around until like the 80s, the, okay. the 80s and 90s. So when did – okay. Where are you at now then? What year? 70? Uh, is it – Contemporary, like 75? This is December of 78. So this is the 45th book that Target released. They were doing two a month in the beginning. Then they were pretty much almost on a monthly schedule. So this is the fifth year. Well, no, sixth, because they they released the three Frederick Muller books, the Hartnell books, in 73. And then in January 74, they started with their own back catalog starting with Spearhead and Cave Monsters in January 74. So now, by December 78, it's their 45th book, and we are here to discuss it, but not yet because we have not run out of uh, other <laughs> small talk first. Uh, okay. Two more points, then. You play Wordle, of course, I'm sure, right? Are you, are you a Wordle player? I uh, I don't do the regular daily one anymore. I never seem to get around to it. Um, I saw that you... Uh, and some other people I, I follow uh, missed out on Perer. Was that the one? Perer. P- Twitter went nuts with P-A-R-E-R. Everybody who posted in that thread had failed the word. Yeah. I, I, I saw your, I think it was your tweet or your whatever, and another friend of mine, Dino Stamatopoulos, posted about it. it um, I think knowing that it was a hard one, led me to get it so i got it in three but yeah but that was i i, I didn't bother i i've kind of given up on uh wordle what i do is i think it's called said to cordal do you know what i'm saying it's Cordal, 16. yeah yeah so i play four of the games each night i do wordle i do quirtle which i don't always solve but i usually get it i do actorly which is it gives you the actor's credits but it's all x'd out except for the punctuation and you have to guess who the actor is based on the cryptogram versions of, the, of, the, of their IMDb credits. And then right. the one that I want to talk to you about now is Movie Dull. Movie Dull is probably my favorite of the four. Oh, this is – all right. Let me get this down. That already sounds good just based on the name. Because I've done the actor one. Maybe, maybe it's not the same one. But I found it impossible. I can't, I can't do it. I'm not good at it. But Movie – what is it? Do they show you like 
because I, I did play one where they, they show you uh, screenshots from a film. Is it that kind of thing? Movie Duel shows you the entire movie in one second. And sometimes, <laughs> like Citizen Kane, you could guess in one second, Wizard of Oz, Pinocchio, anything black and white or animated, you can pretty much guess in one second. If you can't guess it in one second, you have to enter a guess. And if you don't get it, the next clip is the movie compressed into two seconds. And then the longest clip you can watch is six seconds. And if you don't get it in six seconds, you fail. The only one that I failed was 13 Hours, the right-wing Michael Bay Benghazi movie. Oh, my God. I'd never seen it, don't plan on seeing it, and I didn't recognize any of the actors in it. But they usually show either famous or contemporary movies. So the other night, and this is why I'm bringing it up, it was a black-and-white film, and I thought I would get it within a matter of one second, and I didn't. Then they play the two-second version of the movie, and I saw the word Frankenstein somewhere within, but I didn't see Boris Karloff anywhere in the picture. So I assumed it was like, you know, one of the later Frankenstein movies, and it wasn't. Finally, I got it in four seconds, and it was the original 1931 James Whale Frankenstein. Okay. But even in the four-second version, you could not see Boris Karloff anywhere in those four seconds. And I couldn't recognize <laughs> it without the iconic monster costume. So I figured that I failed Bill Evenson's podcast universe because I couldn't guess Frankenstein in one, two, or three seconds. So I have two thoughts on that. Yes, you have failed me, Jason. That's There's no question about it. Uh, but also, uh, the second thought is, it's amazing how little the monster appears in his own movies. Um, uh, he doesn't uh, that he doesn't appear in the first film until thirty some minutes in. So we had to kind of talk about Frankenstein for about thirty weeks. If people don't know <laughs> Frankenstein minute, we talk about the movie minute by minute. We had to talk about the movie for thirty some weeks, so six months, six seven months uh, without, and we actually. Are, if you go back and listen to those, we, every time we mention the word Boris or Karloff, we bleeped it out because we're trying not to talk about him until that, that he appeared on screen. Um, but, but, but that's true with a lot of these. Yeah. A lot of these films, he's it's, it, it says Frankenstein right up front. There's a picture of him on my shirt right here and he's barely in it. Yeah. It's like the writers didn't know what to do with the Frankenstein monster. You know what I mean? So they kind of just dig him up and he stalks around a little bit and then they start him on fire or whatever they're doing. <laughs> I'm just trying to imagine somebody who follows your podcast and tunes in episode one and has a weekly subscription mm-hmm. and it takes you seven or eight months of following your <laughs> show before you even get to the good stuff. Yeah. You must have a really dedicated fan base. I didn't say that now. <laughs> the good stuff starts in minute one. Of course. This is, I mean, obviously, I'm biased. Obviously, I'm biased. But I, and I'm not talking about me and my podcast. I'm talking about these films. But yeah, the minute one is a great minute in Frankenstein. Go and watch it. Just honestly, just watch the first minute. You, you'll be surprised. It's really good. You have talked me into it, and <laughs> I will report. I have seen it in the past. I have the original 2004 Universal DVD box set where they released the first four movies on double-sided discs that are very, very fragile. Yeah, that's right. But it's, it's been a long time. Maybe, maybe I, I'll, I'll spoil it 
but uh, the first minute is a guy walks out. It's it's uh, Edward Van Sloan walks out and talks about the movie you're about to see because it's so shocking. In 1931, the notion of Frankenstein was so shocking that a guy actually walks out from behind a curtain and says, hey, are you guys going to be okay?" (laughs) basically uh, about how, you know, monstrous this story is. One of my favorite minutes. I am tempted now to segue into the haunting of Villa Diodati and talk about the Frankenstein origin story as told in the Doctor Who universe and how it relates to the Cybermen. But we have other things to discuss, so I want to talk about you instead. Okay. This is the second Ian Martyr book that we've covered on Doctor Who literature. The first was covered by Stacy Smith, question mark, and that was The Ark in Space. And it occurred to me that you and Stacy Smith, not only do you have Ian Martyr in common on my show, but you two have authored a book together. Yes. And those of you who follow me on Trap One heard me interview the two of you last year talking about the book. But I wanted to give you a chance to plug it here because this is a Doctor Who books podcast and you are a Doctor Who nonfiction book author. So tell us about that book. How serious is it and why should we buy it and where can we buy it? Okay, so the first thing is it's it's the the most serious Doctor Who book you're ever gonna find. It's 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 vitally important that you purchase this book and put it uh, on your shelf of Doctor Who books because it's it, it's probably the only Doctor Who book you need. Um, okay, maybe not, but it's uh yeah, what it is is uh it's it's a lot of things. This book. One of the things it, it is is uh, is a, a way to fake your way through a Doctor Who convention. Essentially, <laughs> if you walk into a lobby and you have no idea what to say to people, uh, read this book first, and then you'll know everything that you need to know about Doctor Who. Um, but it's 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 what's the word? Uh, humor. It's it's probably filed under humor. It's a bit of a cheeky take on the history of Doctor Who. And yeah, uh, I don't know. You've read it. What do you think? <laughs> the funny, it's, first of all, you haven't given us the title of the book. So give us the title first. Uh, look at the size of that thing. <laughs> <laughs> Which I can only hear in Fraser Hines' voice. Well, I'm so glad to hear that because I can only hear it in uh, the voice of the guy, uh, uh, you know, coming down the trench on the Death Star. To me, that's a Star Wars quote. But I, I get that it's a Doctor Who quote and it's a good one. So we used it. Yeah, It was used in the two Doctors and probably a couple of other uh, Troughton slash Hines stories. But yes, it is also a Star Wars quote, which... There's a little naughty of you using a Star Wars quote for the title of a Doctor Who adventure or a Doctor Who nonfiction book, I should say. So my favorite part of the book is you guys did an episode guide, which is a pastiche on one of Stacey Smith's other book series where he and Graham Burke go through Doctor Who story by story and, and debate it. Yeah. And they give you know first opinion, second opinion. And then you give guy you guys give greater opinion and lesser opinion. <laughs> I think it's how you phrased it. But instead of doing the Doctor Who stories to watch before you die. You guys did a chapter on the 50 Doctor Who stories to die before you watch. So you included the worst Doctor Who stories ever and City of Death. (laughs) (laughs) 
because I think your point of City of Death is so good that if you watch it, you'll never want to watch anything else again, and all of it, the rest of Doctor Who pales in comparison. Yes, that is absolutely the position of uh, Stacy Smith and Billy Vincent in our book. No doubt about it. Having said that, I did recommend it, that story to a friend, I don't know, 20 years ago. In fact, yeah, no, that's right. We sat down to watch it together, City of Death, and the first few minutes are so sort of appallingly of their era. The special effects with, um, oh, shoot. Is it actually Julian Glover at that point? It probably is in his, in his headgear um, are so hilarious that I couldn't, I eventually just shut it off. I, we, we made it about, my friend and I made it about three minutes in and I said, you're not taking this seriously and turned it up. Yeah. City of death. I got pissed because someone wasn't taking it seriously. I, I'm that guy. It doesn't lead with its strength. It really should start off on top of the Eiffel Tower with the Doctor and Romana. Yeah, it should not exactly. begin with a man in a rubber mask uh, in a studio set. Yep. But Star Trek The Next Generation duplicated that set for their final episode, All Good Things, and they almost do a virtual remount of that scene where the Doctor holds up the primeval soup and goes, that's you, Duggan. Wow. So, Someone on the Star Trek production office, at least on the TNG side, is very fond of City of Death. You know, I went back and did a TNG rewatch, and I really enjoyed it, but I just kind of lost, you know what I mean? I just dropped it at some point. I didn't make it all the way through. So I don't think I've seen the one you're talking about. We've been, I, I do want to mention this because I don't, this is important to me. We are doing a rewatch of um, Breaking Bad. We did all Breaking Bad. And uh, Better Call Saul. And we didn't make it. Today was the day I wanted to be able to say what I thought about the Better Call Saul finale. Because I know this is a big... It's something we talked about last time. This is a a favorite of yours. And uh, yeah, I haven't seen it. Don't talk about it. I don't want to know. I don't want to know if Kim Wexler is alive. I don't want to know. I have to watch it. So don't bring it up. I am doing a slow rewatch of Better Call Saul now that the series is over because it's as much as I love the show, I've only ever seen every episode once. It is not the kind of show that you can rewatch mm-hmm. over and over again because it is not exactly comfort viewing. So I'm just watching two episodes a week, Saturday and Sunday. So last weekend, I just finished season one, which is only 10 episodes long. The first seven episodes are not that good because they had not yet figured out the tone of the show. They had not yet figured out how to use Kim Wexler. And the humor is a little broad and scatological, which is not really my wheelhouse, although others may differ. Starting in episode eight, they bring in one of the main plot lines that goes through the entire rest of the series. And that's when it really starts to sizzle. So tomorrow, which is Saturday, I'll be watching the season two premiere, which is the moment they figure out what they can do with with uh, Ray Seahorn. And they realize we have one of the best actresses of her generation that you've never heard of. We're going to give her stuff that matches her ability. And that's when the show really starts to take off. And then, of course, they start working in characters from Breaking Bad throughout seasons two and three of Better Call Saul. Now, Alan Siepenwall, who was a poster on Rec Arts Doctor Who in the early 90s, 
no has become a major TV critic with Rolling Stone. He was reviewing every episode of Better Call Saul as it came out. He just released an article, which I have open in another window, of the, of the 100 greatest TV series of all time. He's the editor of this list, not the author of the list, but he writes the capsule summaries for each series. He has Breaking Bad as the third best series of all time, behind okay. The Simpsons, behind The Sopranos, but he has Better Call Saul down at number 32, and I'm not positive that's right. I think Better Call Saul, in the end, is the better series. Uh, obviously, I, I, I'm i not qualified to speak on that, having not seen the last six or seven episodes, but uh, I do have to say, having gone back, because it, it, it's fascinating, because you and I talked about it. Everybody on the internet has talked about the fact that uh, Better Call Saul might actually be better than uh, Breaking Bad. And I went back and watched Breaking Bad, and I'm like, hmm, I don't know. That's such a great show. I don't. I don't know. I. I. It may, let's call it a tie. But uh, I can't. I can't. Uh, I can't disagree. If if someone says Breaking Bad's the third best show of all time. It, honestly, it's The Simpsons that bothers me. If if The Simpsons had lasted ten years and gone off the air, there'd be no question. People would consider it a great masterpiece. It, it's just gone on too long. I'm not. I don't know. What, I don't know what to make of The Simpsons anymore, or Saturday Night Live for that matter, because I think that's high on that list. It's top twenty, I believe. Yes, it is. Yeah. Although SNL does not have to be good every year or every week. All they have to do is be perfect during election season. And the other three years, nobody really watches. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Maybe that's – I'm watching it wrong. That's the problem. I'm watching it wrong. So I'm going to have you back on this show again because after you're finished with Better Call Saul, I will give you my reasons for thinking that Better Call Saul is the better series. But you need to have finished because the last six or seven episodes are titanic and not in a James Cameron sense. So once you're finished with those, then we'll come back on here and we'll discuss it for my audience, which thought they were getting a Doctor Who podcast and clearly, <laughs> clearly are not. Well, it's really just about me justifying coming back because uh, you now look at that. I've already got an invitation back and we haven't even talked about the book. So, Bill, let's talk about Doctor Who and the Sontaran experience. Experiment. So we talked about this earlier, that this is a very unfunny book, and yet you're drawn to it. What can you tell us about this book, and why, for you, does it work? Why is it an excellent example of a novelization? So, boy, I don't even know where to start. I really like this book. I think, okay, so here's what happened, is I said I wanted to talk about this one. And I knew going into it that it was a two-part story, but it was expanded in the novelization. So I listened to the audiobook, uh, which is uh, read by John Culshaw. Hmm. Um, people will know who that is, but if they don't, he's he's the guy from <laughs> shoot, what was the name of the show he was on? Was that um, Dead Ringers? Dead Ringers, thank you. So he can do Tom Baker, which is a big deal, but he can generally do voices. And I, I loved the audiobook version um, because I think that's really the key to that kind of uh, that job. His job is to read that book. And when you listen, if, if, you're, a, if you're familiar with audiobooks, um, 
whoever's reading it, be it, uh, you know, uh, Tom Baker himself or whoever, you have to, you have to read all these characters. And I think he does an amazing job with it. Um, the point I'm trying to make is I listened to this book and I, I had, I had, when I was done, I had no feeling that I had listened to like some grand epic, like it was too long. Like it had been expanded beyond its, uh, original TV version, which I'm guessing as a target podcast, you have to, that's a big part of why, what we talk about is how is it different than a TV version, right? And I had no, I, I didn't, when I was finished, I didn't feel at all like it was um, bloated or fatty. I thought, I thought the book was exactly what was needed for that, for a novelization of that story with maybe a couple exceptions. <laughs> so you bring up an interesting point. I think the classic series only did six two-parters. Edge of Destruction, this one, Davison did one two-parter a year, and then the ultimate Fui, which is the last uh, Tom Baker story. I choose my words with precision. Well, you said Tom Baker, though. Uh, Colin, oh, I'll say that again. The Ultimate Fooey starring Colin Baker. Yes. Last Colin Baker. I don't know why I made that mistake. You wouldn't realize that I've been a fan for nearly 40 years saying stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, no, it seems like you're just, you're a you're a fraud. <laughs> well, my first story is Time Flight. Yeah, well, I'm not actually a Doctor Who fan. I've just spent 40 years of my life criticizing Time Flight. <laughs> and I'm still not done. Hey, I did a whole book about it. Look at the size of that thing. Look at the size of that thing. So each of the six books takes a different approach to telling a 45-minute story in 120 pages. Edge of Destruction rewrites the story completely and adds scenes and sets that were nowhere to be found on television. The Awakening does not add a single word or scene that wasn't on TV. It is literally a transcript of the TV script, but... Because he has 60 or 80 extra pages, Eric Pringle just does scene setting and exposition to an incredible degree. So the story is not changed at all. He just tells it much more flowery and in a much more interesting way. Ian Martyr, so I'll let you answer this since you're the guest of the week. What does Ian Martyr do to take a rather bare-bones TV story and fill it up 220 pages you know the main thing all right just to get it out of the way maybe the main thing that he adds to it is ian uh climbing out of that cave so he people will know ian martyr played um did i say ian i'm sorry uh harry ian martyr played harry as opposed to russell enoch who played william russell who played ian chesterton (laughs) exactly not confusing at all um so yeah no ian uh martyr played harry and he's great in it and uh everybody loves ian martyr and everybody loves harry i believe um but yeah he expands a bit of the part where um harry is in a cave basically um there's a like you said. There's a bit with uh, an additional bit with Sarah Jane too in the TV story. 
they come down, the TARDIS crew comes down via Transmat, and that's changed in the in the novelization to be, well, the TARDIS comes down, and then it disappears. It's kind of awkward. That part's a little bit awkward, but, um, but un- un- understandable. Ian Martyr had also novelized The Ark in Space, as your co-author, Stacey Smith, was on here to discuss about three or right. four months ago. Well, she doesn't know anything. You know, you can just delete that off your podcast feed. She's terrible. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I think she has written more <laughs> genre books now than Terrence Dick, so she's, she's catching yeah, up. Yeah, that's probably true. That's probably true, yeah. Her uh, Twin Peaks outside in just draws the first outside in that I am not in. Because I've never seen, I've never watched Twin Peaks all the way through. I think that's true for me too. Actually, I'm not in that one. I'm in one of the Twin Peaks. No, no, not one of the. Um, I'm sorry, the um, X Files ones. I'm in both X Files, and I was in the bonus ten essay volume on the first season of Star Trek Picard, which was the pandemic freebie. I got to cover the season finale. That's that's not a lot of people can say that. Yeah, that was a was a coveted. I think I got turned down for that, to be honest, because I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm not a big Star Trek guy, so Stacy was like, you know, no, but thanks. I pitched two episodes, and the one that I wanted, I didn't get. But getting the season finale, getting the last essay in the book, is a pretty big deal. Yeah, awesome. So. Having already written a book that Stacy Smith has talked about on this show, you'll notice at the end of the Ark and Space novelization, they take the TARDIS down to Earth rather than the Transmat. So Ian Martyr is carrying over a change that he made at a different book written 18 months earlier. And you remember that he made the change and carries it over to this book. It's, it's superfluous, like you say, but it's clever and it's interesting that he remembered that he had done that, made the change. I mean, especially, like, again as you read through these target novelizations, the authors aren't that careful about that kind of thing. It, 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 yeah. it it's fine. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't need to be. Uh, I, I, I think it doesn't matter where you start the story. And I guess, okay. in in particular here, I'm happy to have the TARDIS uh, change because that's what Dr. Who is the TARDIS crew shows up in the TARDIS and that's what, and then they go on their adventure and that's what we have here. The fact that he's changed it uh, is probably altogether a good thing because that's, oh, again, that's how I experienced target books. And I assume that's how people at the time experienced them is, I don't know if I talked about this a lot, but my mom was a librarian and I would go to the library that she worked at and pull Doctor Who books off the shelf in the 70s, uh, late 70s, early 80s. So the like the pinnacle books, that kind of thing. And I didn't care what happened the previous week. It, it, it didn't matter. It, this is its own individual story. I don't see why you wouldn't why you wouldn't write it that way. Yeah. I'll give you a couple of facts. <clears throat> Part one the part one material ends on page 48, but the book goes up to page 127. <laughs> so that means Ian, not Russell Enoch, but yeah, the, the, Ian the other Ian. Harry Sullivan Ian spends almost 80 pages adapting part two, which is only 24 or 25 minutes long. 
So that is probably the biggest page count to TV minute ratio in any. And later on in the program, after the break, after you leave us, I will be doing my forensic examination of the script. So I'll be breaking down a lot of the specific changes, but I want to talk about tone. So it's a pretty light, and I say that not as a compliment, TV story. Kevin Lindsay is only in part two. He was in ill health, and he couldn't be running around in that costume the whole time. So they have to limit how much time he's on screen. Tom Baker, perhaps after too long of a night in the pub the night before, perhaps because the ground was wet, fell down a ravine and broke his collarbone. So the last half of part two is made up of two stunt doubles, one for Kevin Lindsay, one for Tom Baker, taking up the bulk of the action. As good as Harry Sullivan is as an interesting, funny character, the character is barely on television. He goes for hours at a time without being seen and without factoring into the plot. And it's impressive that he goes hours at a time without being seen because the whole thing is only 48 minutes long front to back. So there's no plot displacement for Harry Sullivan in the story. In the novelization, Ian Martyr changes that and almost makes Harry the audience identification figure. So let's go back to that scene in the cave. What's the sense you got from that scene? I have a friend of mine that's like a gigantic Doctor Who fan and a big fan of the Target novelizations. And I told him I was reading this one. And, and uh, I asked him, what's the, what's the big difference between the TV story and the novelization? He said, yeah, it's, it's Harry it spends a half an hour or whatever it is, half the book of him in, in the, uh, in the cave. And I'm like, okay, so that's what I knew going in was that that's the part I should look out for. That's the big change. And when I actually did it, I, I, I didn't think it was, um, I didn't think it was that, I, I didn't think it was crazy or anything. Um, I, th- I, I, I don't know. I really like this book. <laughs> I really like the way Ian Martyr writes. I think that when you look at a, something like a Doctor Who target novelization, the way um, Terrence Dix writes, for example, it's um, it's very um, sort of bland. He's just taking the script and saying he said, she said. At least that's that's what that's the criticism people make. And I think uh, Ian Martyr doesn't do that. I think he is trying to add something, and in this case, it succeeds. I like it. So I'll read you out a couple of snippets from that cave scene. This is pages 38 and 39, and I apologize in advance. I am no John Coleshaw. Yeah, no, that's that's a big that's a big uh, uh, jump if you wanna if you wanna try and make that leap. Yeah. I've got a scratchy voice and a Brooklyn accent, so I'm never <laughs> going to be able to do what he does but i want to read you out a couple of things and then i'll ask you uh, a trick slash leading question so i'll read out a sentence from page 38 first sentence of the chapter sweat poured into harry's eyes as he forced his way along the twisting narrow tunnel the roar of the avalanche still sounding in his ears page 39 that's what's a paul harvey impression for you fans of uh american news <laughs> radio Page two. (laughs) But within seconds, he realized that he was as far away from escape as ever. 
The shaft was steadily narrowing around him as he climbed. As it tapered more and more, he found himself completely stuck, just within reach of safety. So, trick question. How does Ian Martyr act in this scene on television? How does he portray the same feeling of claustrophobia and panic? <laughs> I, wa- I went back and rewatched it uh, yesterday. So, yeah, it is a trick question. I would say... It doesn't happen at all, right? Or or does he... All you get is he sort of climbs behind some branches. <laughs> is that right? So you see the back of him? <laughs> yeah, he's absent. Yeah. He's absent for the next eight minutes, and then he turns up in a totally different location without a drop of yeah. sweat on him. It's like in yeah. Jaw and it's like in Jaws Four. In Jaws Four, Jaws the Revenge. It's like in so how many podcasts have had that? It's like in Jaws Four. Is Jaws? Right. I'm sorry. Is Jaws Four the Revenge? Jaws Four the Revenge. This time it's personal. <laughs> I'll tell you what happens. Michael Caine is in his seaplane, and he lands his seaplane on the water. Then the shark, with a roar, because in Jaws of Revenge the shark roars. The shark with a roar attacks his seaplane with him in it, and because he is Michael Caine and still in his prime, and he's in the Bahamas, he's shirtless. So right. the shark attack the shark with a roar attacks the seaplane, drags a shirtless Michael Caine underwater. Five minutes later, he climbs out of the water in a <laughs> freshly pressed shirt and slacks, bone dry after climbing out of the water. And he steps on the deck of Lorraine Gary's boat, bone dry, after having been drowning in the deep, impliedly eaten by a shark five minutes earlier. In the book, Ian Martyr is climbing through a volcanic fissure, stuck, buffeted by smelly hot air, scraped by the fused silica of the cave walls. And when he comes out of that on television... It looks as if he's just, you know, come back from the dry cleaners. Because this scene in the book is not on television. Ian Martyr adds it. He creates it, number one, to give Harry something to do. And number two, to give atmosphere to a TV story that has a couple of witty lines, but it's not really all that atmospheric for the reasons I said earlier. I think that's key, what you just said. Absolutely. That's how I feel about this book. It's easy to talk about the differences and and talk about kind of how absurd it is that Harry's got an increased role or a lot of um, pages, whatever. But yeah, I think, I think this story needs that. I think, I think it's not a bad story. I, I like the story and the TV version is pretty slight. Uh, you know, it's a weird story for a few reasons. It's, it's that season 12 to me is always a little, um, uh, little awkward because Barry Letts and Terrence Dix, uh, maybe this is just my opinion, but Barry Letts and Terrence Dix started season 12. That's the way I look at season 12. I don't feel like it's the new production team taking over until 13. 13 is my favorite. 14 is also my favorite. So that's where I'm at. You know, these are, this is peak Dr. Who for me, but season 12 is a little bit off. And, um, it's such a weird story. Like I said, it's, um, 
it's all on location. Is it the only Doctor Who story still that was shot all on, on location, I believe? Um, Until you get to the McCoy era, I think half of the – any McCoy three-parter is entirely on location. So survival, okay. entirely on location. Delta okay. and the Bannerman, entirely on location. Silly okay. Nemesis, entirely on location. <laughs> Silly Nemesis, yeah. You bring up uh, a good point about this being – a Barry Letts story more than it is a Hinchcliffe home story. Yeah. Barry Letts was filming his stuff pretty much in the middle of winter because his show aired January to June. Some of those episodes are being produced in December, January, February. He decided to break the cycle in season nine, his middle season by filming an episode for season 10 as part of season nine and then holding it over. So Carnival of Monsters, filmed as part of Season 9, aired in Season 10. Time Warrior, filmed as part of Season 10, aired as the Series 11 premiere, because it's an outdoor story. Robot Hmm. is filmed at the exact same time as Planet of the Spiders. That's why... And I'm drawing a blank on his name because I'm old. Nicholas Courtney... I'm not going to edit that. I'm going to leave that in as an example of how old and feeble my mind is getting. <laughs> Nicholas Courtney, the longest-running guest star in Doctor Who history, whose name I totally forgot for a good 10 seconds well, there. Yeah, listeners will appreciate this as the years go on because you continue to forget the important facts about Doctor Who. You are listening to my mental decline in slow motion. So if yeah. you're listening to this podcast and you're binging it an episode a day 10 years from now, <laughs> It'll be like flipping the Marvel comics and seeing the TARDIS dematerialize. You, you, you will hear my brain go away. <laughs> oh, it sounds so sad from on this side of the. Oh, maybe I. Uh, I'll still know, live. That got dark. So Nicholas Courtney is barely in Planet of the Spiders because he was off doing Robot with Tom Baker at the exact same time with a different yeah. production crew. Yeah. Barry Letts is directing Planet of the Spiders, and then Robot is being directed on location because, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, series twelve as aired starts with Robot and ends with Revenge of the Cybermen. Series twelve as produced starts with Santaran Experiment and ends with Terror of the Zygons. And if you were yes. reading TV Guide in the mid nineteen nineties when that aired on Maryland Public Television when I was an undergrad. The TV Guide description said, tonight on MPT, Doctor Who lets Zygons be bygones. It's <laughs> literally a uh, TV Guide summary of that story circa 1994. <laughs> Hinchcliffe, this is yeah. Hinchcliffe's first story. It's his first story to produce. And he's afraid that his actor is killed on location because Tom Baker had that terrible fall. And was Absolutely. So when I had Philip on, I didn't discuss this with him because who wants to bring up awful memories? The point is, Philip does 16 serials in three years. This is the first. Talons of Wang Chiang is the last. Of those 16 serials, eight of them are in the top 22 on the last DWM survey in 2014. Yeah, That'll do well for you. If half of your stories are in the top 22 Doctor Who of all time, that means of the top 22, 36% of that is Philip Hinchcliffe and Robert Holmes. This story is probably, and I did Android Invasion last week, so it seems like I'm piling on. Android Invasion is probably the weakest. Santaran Experiment is probably the second weakest out of those 16. And this is it's his first it's his first time out. It's a script that he inherited that he had no creative input in 
into. It's a story that he probably would not have pitched in a production meeting. It was, I think, commissioned by Barry Letts. So on television, this is a story that is not, it's not essential Doctor Who viewing. It's great that it's short. It's great that it has the Sontarans. It's great that it has a great TARDIS team in Tom and Ian and Liz, but it's not one of the all-time great stories. But the book addresses all of those problems head on. It makes it claustrophobic. It adds visual effects. It adds monsters. There's more robots. It adds more Sontarans. And when you're listening to the book, or reading it in my case, if you look at the language and the scenes that are added, Ian Martyr is making Lovecraftian horror while the production team was doing a 40-minute, 45-minute trifle on location. (laughs) So Ian Martyr is saying, all right, this is my script. Not a very good script. What can I do to make this a book that's going to scare the kids witless? I know. I'll just Lovecraft the Lovecraft out of this. And that's what he's doing. When Ian Martyr sat down to write this one, he's got he's got a, he's got a good foundation because big part of that. Well, what's the Suntaran experiment, right? What's the experiment? It's I'm not sure what the experiment is, but <laughs> but at least where with regards to Sarah Jane, we can see what happens. He it, that's you described it. It, it it's about horror. It's about terror. It's about um, Fear. Fear is really the the point of what Steyer is trying to do. And and yeah, watching it on uh, TV, it, it's it's two episodes before we move on to the good stuff. And absolutely. Um, why not take that concept and use it in the novelization to make it? Well, that's it. It improves it. I think it's an improvement. The joy in watching the episode is watching them climb around Dartmoor and all these rock structures that Arthur Conan Doyle had used in Hound of the Baskervilles. It takes place in the exact same location. So the joy of watching it on TV is looking at the location. It's a gorgeous location. It's very bleak and it looks Mm otherworldly. Ian Martyr adds on to that by doing body horror. The 10-page sequence where Sarah is being tested with fear is much scarier than on television where all they had was a limp plastic snake that was being jiggled along on wires. The book, I was almost uncomfortable reading what amounts to torture porn. Can I say porn on this podcast? Well, it's my podcast. I can say it. It's it's torture porn. And I, I felt kind of uncomfortable with what Ian Martyr is doing to a character played by by a close friend of his but it works because the images are so visceral that they stay in your head decades later. And since we're kind of overlapping the stuff that I'm going to talk about after the jump, what I want to do is test you and experiment on you oh, an exercise God. in visceral fear that we call 20 questions. Oh, no. I won this, didn't I? Didn't I win this or something? You did. However, a new record has been set since the last time we were on. Conrad got the story in six questions, and I want to see if somebody can break that record. What did I do, seven then? I must have done seven. Okay. I don't remember. That was like six months ago. (laughs) If I I had an intern, I would would pause the tape. Got to get an intern. intern. Go to the archives. I would have my intern play the episode, listen to your 20 questions, and see how many you got it in. 
but I'm going to see if you can break Conrad's record and get it in less than six. I have selected one Doctor Who story at random from the randomizer.net. And it's any story, all the way from an unearthly child to the legend of the sea devils. Yeah. Because, because uh, the next one hasn't aired yet. We know that it's going to be airing sometime in October, but here we are on September 30th, and we still don't know when it's going to air. It could theoretically no. be airing in two weeks, and they haven't told us yet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's called marketing, Jason. It's, uh, it's beyond you. Marketing is to build buzz. Marketing is not to hide what you're doing and pretend it's not there. <laughs> that's, that's... This is the HBO Max uh, <laughs> Batgirl movie style of marketing. Let's spend $90 million and then never air the thing. <laughs> that's that's where we're at. Okay. I, I just have a guess. I, I'm going to guess Legend of the Sea Devils. Or is it? do I do my guests count uh, uh, against me? This is like Wordle. It's your opening question. You're going to see if you can get it in one. Okay. And you did not get it in one. It is not Legend of the Sea Devil. But you have 19 more questions to guess. All right. I have 19. <laughs> okay. Is it in black and white? It is not in black and white. So now you're on question three. Uh, is it during the JNT era? It is not during the JNT era. See, I know it now already. Question four. Um, does the doctor have one companion? No, the doctor does not have only one companion. Question five, the quarter waypoint. I have questions. I have questions. Um, well, you've ruled out all of the 60s, and you've ruled out mm. all of the 80s. Mm. You've managed to narrow it down. It is a story that either aired in the 70s or somewhere between art five and the present. So you've cut out 20 years of Doctor Who. You've got about 40 years left and 15 questions to narrow it down to a single story in a 40-year haystack. Good luck to you, sir. <laughs> All right. Uh, is the Doctor's companion Sarah Jane? No, the Doctor's companion is not Sarah Jane. So that's question six by the boards. So it's more than one companion. Or zero companions. We ruled out that it is not a single companion story. All right, I'll go there then. Uh, is the story The Deadly Assassin? The story is not The Deadly Assassin. We're now Gosh. on question eight. So far, my fiendish experiment has you trapped and flailing. I, I am like the styre of podcasts. Oh, I see. I'm forgetting the modern series. I don't think of that as Doctor Who. Is the story from the Russell T. Davies era? No, the story is not a Russell T. Davies-era story. Mm. And that'll make this game very hard in a couple of years when there are two separate RTD years. <laughs> well. <laughs> but you've now closed out. It's not 2005 through 2009. So you've ruled out another chunk of the show. Uh, does the story feature Matt Smith? The story does not feature matt smith so now you can cross 2011 through 2013 right off your 2010 through 2013 right off your list i think we're at question 11 now you're halfway done and you've ruled out a lot of years you should be able to get it even if it takes you all 20 questions is it a weeping angel story it is not a weeping angel story does the story feature river song no the story does not feature river song 
I'm terrible at this. It's, it's not black and white. It's not River Song. What else is Doctor Who? That's it. That's everything. Well, you have not ruled out the Barry Letts era, the Hinchcliffe era, the Graham Williams era, the Stephen Moffat, oh, okay. and the Chris Chibnall eras. Oh, is K-9 a... I'm sorry. This is outside the normal questioning. I have to understand the rules. Is K-9 a companion? Yes, he is. Okay. So when I ask you how many companions, K-9 counts. Yes. It, City of Death is a one companion story, but Creature from the Pit is a two companion story. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, does the story feature a returning uh, monster? No, the story does not feature a returning monster. I wanted you to say yes. So it's a one... All right. My God. Doctor Who's too big. I can't figure this out. Um, Does the story feature... I can't think of her name. Um, Clara. No, it does not feature Clara. And that rules out a few more years, too, so that's good. That works yeah. out a whole bunch of stories. She was the companion that never went away. Uh, tell me about it. Is the Doctor Jodie Whittaker? Yes, the Doctor is Jodie Whittaker. Oh, I wish I would have said that as my first question. How many have got left? Uh, about four or five questions left. That means it's not the haunting of Villa... Diodati, although you also said there were no returning monsters. So it can't be that, because that has the Cybermen returning. Right. Alright. Uh, hold on a second. It does feature Jodie Whittaker, correct? Mm-hmm. Just want to make sure. Maybe I can still get it. Let me just... Hold on one second. Whew. Does the story take place on Earth? Yes, it does. That makes it worse. Is the story in Jodie Whittaker's first season? Yes, it is. And you're lucky because if you had to go through second and third seasons, you might have run out of questions. But yes, it is in Jodie's first season. Does the story take place in the past? See, I see what you're doing. You're going down her episode guide starting at the top. Yes, it does take place in the past. And since we're almost oh, out of man. questions, we'll call this question 20. You have one more shot, but I think after 19 somewhat eclectic questions, I think you've finally arrived at the only possible answer. The story on Earth set in the really? past in Jodie Whittaker's first season. Is the story Rosa? Yes, the story <laughs> is... No one has ever come close to failing on this show than you have just now. <laughs> I am now going to reload the randomizer to pick a story for my next guest. Ooh, that's a very good one. Rosa, of course, is excellent, but the next story is nothing at all like Rosa, but it's a very good story in its own right. So whoever plays 20 questions next will be in for a treat as they try and solve the mystery of can I solve the riddle in fewer questions than Bill? I, I, can I just say, I loved Rosa. I loved it. I thought it was great. And uh, I'm not sure that I could say that about anything that happened since then. 
I'll just tell you this, because I'm doing my pilgrimage, right? And yeah. this is month 24 of my pilgrimage. In three weeks, it'll be exactly two years since I started with an unearthly, unearthly child and cave of skulls on the same night. I am kind of done. I am exhausted. I am kind of all Doctor Who'd out. So when I watch the Jodie Whittaker stories, I love her as an actress. I think she's giving an incredible performance, but I don't think the writing serves her very well. So when I watch the episodes, it's in a very critique kind of way. I like this. I didn't like that. This worked. That didn't work. My particular Twitter circle is full of unabashed Jodie Whittaker fans. So the folks who are following me on Twitter love this era a lot more than I do. It's really the first time, and I'm trying to run a very positive pilgrimage. It's really the first time that my followers have liked this era of the show more than I have. So in the past, I would say something nice about a bad story and people would disagree. Now I'm critiquing the story honestly or fairly from my point of view. People love this era, so I'm getting a lot of spirited defenses of stories that it never occurred to me that people might like. Like for me, Ghost Monument is a trifle, nothing to it. People love it. For me, It Takes You Away, that's the one with the gigantic frog, is a strange story. People love it. So I'm getting a very interesting look at the positive side of Doctor Who Twitter by saying negative, or not negative, but by saying nuanced things about the Jodie Whittaker here, because I am followed by a lot of Jodie fans, unabashed Jodie slash Chibnall fans. Not what I was expecting. I mean, um, I think it's always a good idea to separate Jodie from Chibnall. Uh, a lot of people don't like Jody, and I just don't see that. I think she's, I've never thought that she was a bad doctor. I don't like the Chibnall era. <laughs> Generally, I don't like it, but I do like Rosa. So I'm glad I got to have that one as my guess, my 20th guess. What do you think of Rosa? It sounds like you didn't care for it. Or, or, or at least you had some criticisms of it. What I don't understand is for the very first time you have a black female author writing a Doctor Who episode, and it's a very personal episode because she's writing about Rosa Parks. Right. And there is a scene in the episode where Ryan actually gets to meet Dr. Martin Luther King and shakes his hand, and the camera zooms in on the handshake like it's Tom Baker and Anthony Ainley shaking hands at the end of Legopolis Part 3. Only this is a good handshake. This is clearly a very personal story. Why, then, did Chris Chibnall need to give himself co-author credit on the episode? Why does Chris Chibnall take a script written by a black woman and say, you know what this script by and about a black woman needs? A middle-aged white guy with his name on the script. (laughs) I don't understand that. I'm sorry. I, I shouldn't laugh because I completely understand what you're saying. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I don't know what part of the scripts were Chibnall. I don't know what about that particular story. And it's not a very complex story. It's, 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 it's not you know a story with multiple layers of treachery. It's not a story with a surprise twist. What about that story, a very personal story, required Chris Chibnall to be listed as co-writer? And yeah. one day the answer will come out. But right now, sitting here in 2022, I don't know the answer. And it confuses me. And every time I watch the story and I see his name on the title screen, it irks me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, when did when did the the Russell book with um, I can't think what who co wrote it with him, but the Russell T Davies book um, 
You know what I'm talking about. What was that book called? The Writer's Tale. That was like 2009, 2010. So it came out while he was still making Doctor Who or or very soon uh, thereafter. Yeah, because it was well, pretty I contemporaneous think, to his last season. Yeah, uh, I guess I, I, I prefer the extended paperback edition to the original. So, yeah, that came out right at the end there. Um, we're just not going to get that from Chipnall. <laughs> I think it's going to be – well, I'm sorry. We will get that, but it might be 10, 20 years from now. We can't even get the air date for his final episode. We can't, can't even build a buzz about an episode that nobody knows when it's going to air. Yeah, some yeah. fan is going to go on Twitter next month. So when is Power of the Doctor airing? Oh, it aired two weeks ago on twenty four hours notice. You didn't know? I, I I tweeted. Yeah, no kidding. I tweeted yesterday something. It said uh, something about the popular Doctor Who TV series. The popular TV series, Doctor Who, blah, 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 is filming wherever. I'm like, can you really call it a TV series when it's never on TV? Like, the show's just not even a show. But maybe that was the point. I don't know. Maybe I'm missing something. Maybe in this streaming era, I don't know. Maybe everything drops differently. We'll see. I feel I feel like we're restarting with Russell, and then we'll know how it how Doctor Who moves forward. There was never any move forward under the Chibnall era. It's 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 dragging, and it's, it isn't that bad. It, I'm sorry. I just want to make sure that I'm, I come across as uh, it's fine. It's Doctor Who is just fine. It's just not very good. See, my Twitter followers are very pro Jody. And they're also very pro-Chibnall. So a group, a mob of my Twitter followers with flaming torches are going to follow you to the edge of a cliff and throw you over like at the end of Frankenstein. Frankenstein, if you will. If my followers want to grab torches and throw you over the cliff, where can they find you on the internet to do so, Bill? Uh... I don't think I'm on the what'd you call it the internet? I don't internet. it doesn't ring a bell. Yeah, no, I don't think so. Uh they can follow me on Twitter at uh Bill Evenson, which I'm not going to bother to spell. And of course, we also have Franken Minute, which is the Frankenstein Minute on Twitter and on Facebook. And we have a Facebook group called the Frankenstein Minute Village for people who want to bring their torches bring them to the village. Uh, and I think we're on Instagram. I don't know. Oh, 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 we're on Patreon. Do you have a Patreon for this? I do not have a pay. This is a non-monetized podcast. No Patreon, mm. no buy me a coffee, no interns, no mm. producers, we're, no engineers. Yeah, you're, you're missing out, man. Cause we're, we're making a bundle. These, these little <laughs> tiles can't, don't buy themselves. It's all from, from our <laughs> listeners. Shelling out their their cash for our exclusive content about nonsense, or if yeah. you will, Mary Shellying out their cash. <laughs> nice, nice. Always love a Mary Shelley reference. Thank you, Bill. Thank you for joining me on Doctor Who Literature. We'll see you next time. Have a great night. Hey, uh, thanks for having me. Doctor Who and the Sontaran Experiment, written by Ian Martyr, televised as the Sontaran Experiment, teleplayed by Bob Baker and Dave Martin, 
televised in February and March 1975, published in December 1978. Landing on Earth, now a barren, desolate planet, Sarah, Harry, and the Doctor are unaware of the large watching robot. The robot is the work of Steyer, a Sontaran warrior, who uses all humans landing here for his experimental programs. What has happened to the other space explorers who have come here? Why is the Sontaran scout so interested in Earth and in brutally torturing humans, including Sarah Jane? Will the Doctor be able to prevent an invasion and certain disaster, and save both Earth and his companions? I struggled with this book as a kid. I must have been about 12 or 13 when I got it. I couldn't articulate why I struggled with it at that age. It seems obvious in retrospect. I was used to reading Terence Dix's effortless, crystal-clear prose, with rarely a word longer than three syllables, and never a run-on sentence. Ian Martyr's prose is much more complex and challenging. The sentences can be hard to diagram, but they do paint a vivid, dark picture. First paragraph. A huge red sun hung in the sulfurous yellow sky, its angry light filtering through thin clouds of whitish mist, which swirled over the deserted, wasted landscape. Its dulled rays were reflected with a sinister glow in the scarred surfaces of nine spheres, each about a meter in diameter, which formed a perfect circle, roughly twelve meters across. And Ian Martyr's description of the Tom Baker Doctor is similar to Terence's, but told much less economically. Here's a quote from page 8. A very tall man appeared, balanced for a moment on the threshold, then took a deep breath and jumped lightly to the ground. He was dressed in a voluminous rust-colored velvet jacket and oatmeal tweed trousers. Then he wore an enormously long multicolored scarf tied with a giant knot under his chin. A battered felt hat with a wide brim was crammed haphazardly on top of his mass of curly brown hair. He surveyed the scene with a single sweep of his huge, eager, blue eyes. This is not bad prose. There'll be bad prose coming to the target line later on, though not often, and not from every author. Martyr is very evocative and atmospheric. The Sontaran experiment on TV is a treat to look at, thanks to the Dartmoor location videotaping, which, when restored for Blu-ray, looks like it was shot yesterday. Martyr takes dramatic license to make the location look even weirder and more fantastic. For example, page 13, Harry was leading the way down into a deep gorge, its steep sides covered in strange kinds of moss, which resembled moldy bread, and in rubbery, fungus-like growths the color of burnt toffee. Enormous rocky outcrops reared above them, like fantastic heads carved out of ebony, and all around them were scattered massive glassy boulders. Here and there rattled patches of reed and thickets of giant thorn, bristled with vicious reddish daggers. This is the first Target book in a while that takes serious liberties with the TV script. Looking at the infotext commentary on the DVD and Blu-ray, it appears that Marta was novelizing an earlier version of the script. This was an all-location serial, and dialogue tends to change quite a bit out on the field versus in studio in these 1970s Doctor Who episodes. The dialogue and scene order in Chapter 1 is similar to what's on TV, but not nearly identical. It's the same basic story but with lots of subtle changes, which there wouldn't be much joy in cataloging, except to say that Chapter 1 has the Doctor and Sarah and Harry arrive by TARDIS rather than Transmat Beam, to match the end of the Ark in Space novelization, which also had them depart from Space Station Nerva by TARDIS rather than Transmat Beam. I'm going to engage in a little bit of sacrilege here. The author passed away 35 years ago, 
and this was only his second book. But I think some of what I was reacting to at age 12 is that, in places, the book seems a little overwritten. Ross and I had a similar conversation about the prose style of Brian Hales back in episode 11 of The Curse of Pelennon. On the printed page, not every word needs a modifier. Adverbs and adjectives are best used in moderation. However, in the spoken word format, tons of descriptors may help set a mood. I'm going to read out the opening paragraph now of chapter 2. It seems overwritten to me, but let's see how it sounds. Sarah eventually found her way back to the ghostly circle of glinting spheres after a breathless and spine-chilling scramble through the alien landscape. All around her, the mist gathered itself into massive haunting shapes, and the enormous red eye of the sun followed her with his inescapable malevolent gaze. At every turn, she was pursued by the leathery flapping sounds, which seemed to stop whenever she paused to listen and peer about, but instantly continued as soon as she pressed, desperately, onward. But let's step back from the words for a minute. What's the story Martyr is trying to tell? Pages 22 to 25 encompass two short TV scenes, one with Sarah, one with Harry, holding just ten words of spoken dialogue. Disposable scenes. When you go back and list your ten favorite memories of the Santaran experiment, these scenes won't be on it. But Martyr uses the Sarah scene to express fear and terror, and the Harry scene to face an impossible choice. The point of the book scenes is to scare or terrify, or make nervous, the reader about what's happening. In this regard, Martyr does better work than the TV serial. And this is the gift of a two-parter. When you have the word count of a four-parter, you can expand scenes, character insights, emotions. Chapter 2 is, as Harry says earlier in the book, chock-a-block, with unsettling descriptions of sounds, flapping, rubbery slapping, and sights, a strange greenish light. So if you step back from the verbiage and look at the forest of the book, rather than the individual trees of the words... I think that's not a mixed metaphor. The book is designed to heighten your emotions. On that level, it succeeds admirably. Of course, there are some wonderful Tom Baker-inspired dialogue passages on TV, stuff you'd want to replay endlessly in your head if stuck on a desert island. The book is missing these. Let's listen to this example from part one. Right. How long have they been in deep freeze on Nerva? Oh, 10,000 years. And you woke up before the others? Well, no, I'm a sort of traveling time expert. As you can see, Earth's been habitable for several thousand years, but they didn't wake up. Why? Clock stopped, overslept, so here I am. Clock expert? Well, horologist, actually, and chronometrist. I just love clocks. Atomic clocks, war quartz clocks, grandfather clocks. still lying. Shut up, Eric! Cuckoo clocks. You got any proof? Well, no, but then I didn't expect to meet anybody. I understood Earth wasn't inhabited. Yes, that's what we thought, until we got a distress signal from around here. A mayday? Then you're a military expedition, I take you. Hey, one of our Galsec freighters went missing. We, uh, we picked up a distress call and came down for a look-see. As soon as we stepped from the ship, it was vaporized. Nine of us were stuck here. Nine? Where are the rest? Vanished. And we reckon that that circle of yours has got something to do with it. Oh, rubbish. That's just the reception point for the transmat beam. Let's kill him now and get it over with. No! That's wild talk, Erak. Far from killing me, you should treat me as an honored guest. Why? Well, you don't want to be stuck here forever, do you? Go on. I might consider helping you. And how do you reckon to help us? Simple. 
I finish refocusing the matter beam, then we all pop up to Nerva. You get in touch with your headquarters and they send a ship for you. Oh, well, sir, if you are one of the old people, we are not taking any orders from your lot. While you were dozing away, our people kept going and they made it. we got bases all across the galaxy now. You've done nothing for 10,000 years while we made an empire. You understand? Oh, absolutely. We're not taking any of that Mother Earth rubbish. Almost two minutes of truly engaging dialogue. In the book, only a fraction of that is transcribed, and it takes up less than a full page, half of 35 and a quarter of 36. The book is out for chills and frights. Witty, urbane dialogue isn't needed. Boy, that was good dialogue, though. Chapter 3 is a revisiting of the Ark and Space novelization, which came out more than 18 months earlier. Harry in Chapter 3, like Sarah in the Part 4 material in the Ark, has a very claustrophobic crawl through narrow, twisting, and closing tunnels, and gets stuck. In the same chapter, Marta remembers that he had the Doctor's scarf severed in half early in the Ark book, and the Doctor was walking around with the two halves of the scarf knotted together. And on page 41, he remembers that bit of martyr-only continuity and references it again. Glorious. Brilliant. None of that Harry claustrophobia material is on TV, by the way. Harry usually drawing the short end of the plots drawn in season 12, but this is martyr book. And he's going to give himself something meaningful to do, dadgummit. Good thing, too. Yes, I did say dadgummit. I say dadgummit now. Dadgummits are cool. Bottom of page 43. Harry felt his way along a tortuously narrow fissure, which led first upwards and then downwards, to the right and then to the left, and which sometimes twisted round and round in a spiral. The heat was rapidly becoming unbearable, and he could scarcely touch the sides of the shaft. The strange rhythmic pulses, surging through the rocky labyrinth, were beating in his head like a monstrous drum, and the suffocating fumes grew thicker at every step. As he stumbled through the choking fog, Harry felt the tunnel begin to open out. The drumming gradually reached a climax, then he suddenly found himself in a kind of chamber, which was dimly lit by a natural phosphorescence of the rock walls and roof. In the center of the chamber floor, huge, murky bubbles were forming in a pool of hot, viscous mud and bursting in clouds of dense glass, whose detonations echoed around the network of tunnels. In this chapter, Harry also catches his first glimpse of the Sontaran, in a very different way to how it happened on television. And he says out loud to himself, It can't be. It isn't possible. But it looks like the Golem. Yes, the Golem. Not Gollum from Lord of the Rings, which was my first thought when I first read this, but the Golem of Jewish mythology, made famous first by the seminal German silent films. An amazing movie from 1920. Check it out if you haven't seen it already and then made famous more recently by Michael Chabon, first in the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. There it is, even a clue in the title. And then in the first season of Star Trek Picard, on which Chabon was showrunner, and into which he reworked the Golem legend, as well as naming an episode or two after his own backlist. I didn't actually know that bit of Jewish mythology when I was 12. Never came up in eight years of Hebrew school, or bar mitzvah lessons, so thanks to Ian Martyr for helping round out what my teachers missed. Harry spends the next dozen or so pages after this thinking through the story of the golem and working into imagined dialogue for the book that has no parallel on TV. The part one cliffhanger comes on page 48, about a third of the way into the book. Martyr actually deletes some TV material from part one, mostly scenes involving only the irksome Galsic crew, and then turns his eye toward making half the TV story, part two, 
take up two-thirds of the novel. He does this by focusing on the five senses, what the characters feel, smell, hear, see. Not tasting, but as dying of thirst is a feature of the story, that lack of sense is in play too. Let's spend the rest of this episode talking about how Martyr turns 24 minutes of part 2 on television into 80 pages of book. He continues to use much leaner dialogue than on TV. That's appropriate. Doctor Who usually sailed on TV because of rapid-fire witty dialogue in both incarnations of the series. But Martyr has 120 pages of typed world-building rather than 48 minutes of video, so needs the word picture to pass the time. On page 50, the Doctor has a vivid dream sequence about rats in the TARDIS. It's gross. Quote, The Doctor moaned and stirred slightly. Then he began to thrash about in spasms of panic. The TARDIS was surrounded by a host of colossal rats, their teeth squeaking against the frosted glass window panes, and their claws tearing at the creaking woodwork of the battered police box. The wretched machine was completely out of control, and nothing the Doctor could do would make it respond. It had drifted too close to the edge of a rotating black hole, and had been pitched and tossed like a cork in a typhoon, hurling the Doctor against the controls. His head raging with pain, he struggled to activate the stabilizers as the voracious rats gnawed hungrily at the windows, fighting to get at him. The book gets more unpleasant on page 59, chapter 4. The sequence where Styre, and that's spelled S-T-Y-R-E in the TV credits, but only S-T-Y-R in the book. So as with the Ark and Space book, Martyr is taking poetic license with how to spell the bad guy's names. Styre imprisons Sarah and tests her by projecting horrific images into her mind. This is rather brief on TV. In the book, it goes on with nightmare scenario after nightmare scenario almost what might be called torture porn. The optics of Martyr are writing this material, in which the character played by his female co-star is tormented, would probably result in a very different book today, but it's impossible to imagine that Martyr would have had any evil intent. He just wanted to write a scary book, and that he's done. Page 59. With a thunderous, tearing sound, the surrounding rock began to bulge and twist into nightmare shapes gigantic gnarled faces with bottomless pits for eyes, and grinning mouths bristling with razor-edged fangs burst out at her from the heaving walls of the alcove. Bubbles of loathsome, oozing liquid seeped from thousands of tiny fissures and formed into strands of molten rock, thin as cobwebs, which enveloped her like a cocoon. It seemed to Sarah that unmentionable horrors which had lain hidden at the back of her mind all her life were suddenly becoming reality all around her. And page 62... Quote, he, that's Harry, saw Sarah crouching in the middle of the alcove, her hands tearing wildly at her hair, and her eyes fixed upon some invisible horror at which she was screaming soundlessly, her whole face contorted. On pages 63 and 64, Sarah experiences basically what the doctor did at the part one cliffhanger to Vengeance on Varos, only so much worse. Quote, her parched throat uttered, a series of rasping croaks which rang in the emptiness around her. The gigantic disk of the sun swelled until it filled the entire sky. She felt her eyes shriveling in their sockets, and as she gasped for air, her lungs filled with molten lead which rapidly solidified, transforming her into a mummified metal figure lying rigid in the endless desert. This is all done up as a very brief montage on TV, not nearly as horrific or detailed. The tortures Martyr has Sarah go through would be impossible to realize on TV, 
which makes this the first Target book since Malcolm Holt's heyday that's, quote, too broad and deep for the small screen. Chapter 5 is a succession of invented scenes. More horrific torture for Sarah, a scene where Harry tries to ambush the Sontaran with a large rock and leaps on the Doctor instead, who of course dodges the blow, and there's some comedy with the Doctor's hat, and two pages of the Doctor giving dense technobabble explanations for what is a Sontaran. Lungs of spongy steel wool, evidently. And it takes Harry two pages to report in that Sarah is actually a captive torture victim. The sequence on TV has no parallel. When the Doctor rescues Sarah from captivity on TV, he does so simply and effortlessly with a sonic screwdriver. But when he does so in the book, it's breaking through something called a Geon force field with his bare hands, which causes great pain and nearly disintegrates him, and which takes up a couple of sections. Martyr spares no one from his torture porn. Page 78. The doctor ran blindly through the ravine, his lungs bursting and his two hearts swelling as if to choke him. The strength in his legs began to dissolve and he fell down a steep slope into a thick bed of brittle ferns, their stems shattering like machine gun fire, into a cloud of fine blackish dust, which hung in the air before settling in a thin layer over his crumpled body. This is a much more vivid means of knocking the Doctor unconscious, something that happened to Tom Baker in literally every story produced in between Robot and the Invisible Enemy, by the way, than on TV where Steyer stuns him with a blaster bolt. In the book, the Doctor dodges the bolt before collapsing unconscious on his own in the paragraph above. The chapter ends with Harry attempting to violently attack Steyer with a piece of flint after believing both the Doctor and Sarah to be dead, before the Doctor interrupts his attempt with physical force. There is a similar scene on TV, only not nearly so physical. Chapter 6 is called The Challenge, and this is a little worrisome, as we're only a little more than halfway into the book, and the Doctor's challenge to Steyer is basically the last five minutes of the TV serial, with more than 40 pages left to go in the book. How is that going to work? The conversation between the Doctor and Harry is reasonably intact from TV, but Martyr inverts two gag lines, never throw anything away, and it's a mistake to clutter one's pockets. The lines are funnier in the reverse order, as Martyr discovers. But the next scene is a callback to the Sarah torture porn, where Harry now falls prey to the same mind trick, and he's ripped to pieces by an imaginary, feral, spider-like Sarah. That could never have been achieved in 1975, and the TV serial is better for not having it but it is visceral and adds to the book's already considerable atmosphere. The material with Steyer torturing Vural, Viacrans, and Eric, with the old giles Corey treatment from Arthur Miller's The Crucible, more weight, more weight, is intact, but the Doctor's destruction of Steyer's scout robot is considerably expanded. Martyr plucks the word Terulian, which is mentioned only three times on TV, and echoes it throughout the book even having the Doctor speculate that because Terulian is formed in planetary crust via radiation, and with the Earth having just survived the solar flares, that the entire invasion by the Sontarans might be about this material. Actually, it isn't. That's a red herring. It turns out the Sontarans in the book are allying with another clone race, the Hyperioi, to conquer the galaxy. That's a martyr invention, too. And the Doctor uses Terulian to free Sarah from captivity and to disable the robot. On TV, it's merely the sonic screwdriver which achieves these two tasks, and in much shorter time. The chapter ends with the challenge, and this is the point of the book where you'd ordinarily get your part three cliffhanger, meaning 25 minutes of TV time are yet to be adapted, 
But of course, we know that isn't the case. In Chapter 7, based on the TV material, Harry is supposed to go onto the Santaran's tiny scout craft, the silver golf ball-looking thing, and unplug some wires. Ian Martyr looks at this, presumably strokes his chin, drums his fingers against his typewriter with one hand, and pulls an anthology of my old Brooklyn neighbor H.P. Lovecraft down from the shelf with the other, and turns that tiny scout into an impossibly claustrophobic maze of tiny, cramped cells, with another scavenger robot hunting within. On TV, Sarah also helps free Kranz, Arak, and Viral from captivity in a matter of seconds. In the book, Martyr has Sarah use the sonic screwdriver, which the doctor has dropped in his struggle with Steyer, to release them from bonds made of Tyrolean. But she does so carefully and gingerly, because she, quote, knew that the slightest mistake would be fatal. Wow. Dark. I think that's the only time in the Doctor Who canon where the sonic screwdriver is characterized as potentially deadly to humans. There's a dark thread that could have used an airing or two during the Peter Capaldi era. And not only is the Santaran scoutcraft bigger in the book, but Steyer is too, described as huge a few times. On page 109, Steyer lifts the Doctor up and dangles him, quote, like a carcass from a butcher's hook. I'll take things that nobody else ever said about the fourth Doctor ever for 2000, Alex. Martyr also improves the fight scene, performed by two stuntmen on TV, as Bill and I discussed earlier. It's a good fight, but Martyr defies the laws of gravity and has people flying all over the place. The fight as scripted is unsatisfying, not because of the stuntmen involved, but because Steyer calls a timeout on the fight to go recharge. When you try that on the prize fighting ring, it's called a TKO. Just ask Sonny Liston about the time he tried that one night in Miami in 1964. Inside the Santaran spacecraft, Ian finds not just Steyer's Energizer alcove, but also two other Santarans. We'd never see more than one Santaran at a time in Doctor Who until the invasion of time three years later. Actually, the book came out after Invasion of Time had already aired, but I doubt that would have been a direct influence on Martyr, as his Santarans are less comical and more dangerous. He also adds a bit of tension, as Steyer almost discovers what Harry is up to. Page 113. As he knelt there, straining to turn the keys with numb fingers, he felt the floor of the chamber suddenly start to vibrate beneath his knees. He froze, listening intently. The heavy, erratic tramping was coming nearer and nearer. Steyer, he shivered, the sweat turning to ice on his forehead. Frantically, he wrenched and twisted the last few keys, expecting at any moment to be engulfed in a gigantic explosion. The stumbling and gasping of the approaching Steyer thundered and echoed through the honeycomb of chambers as Harry gripped the final key with all his strength and tried to turn it. Very, very slowly, the key began to give. Harry knew that he had only a few more seconds. There was a rapid series of clicks, and the panel came away in his trembling hands. At the same instant, Steyer burst into the chamber, panting horribly in his struggle for survival. Harry scrambled to his feet, clutching the panel to his chest, not knowing which way to run. He stared round in confusion at the series of identical modules surrounding the chamber. Steyer was almost upon him. In desperation, he pressed himself against the energizer structure and waited. I'll admit I was legit tense reading that, even though I know, of course, that it all turns out okay. Except in the next two paragraphs after that, the final two paragraphs of Chapter 7, Harry is pursued back into the scout craft by an enormous metallic spider. Not something that ended up making its way into Santaran TV lore, 
though the flux season did just fine without metallic spiders. At least, the flux season did fine, at least insofar as these Santarans went. But it's a cool image. And again, something that couldn't have been realized on location in Dartmoor in 1975. On TV, the entirety of Chapter 7 is sandwiched around exactly four lines of dialogue. That means the chapter is about 98% pure martyr. Page 119. Steyer stood on the hatchway of the spacecraft, enveloped in smoke and sparks. His gigantic frame had doubled in size. His eyes were two roaring jets of fire like blowtorches, and a thick oily froth poured from his cavernous red mouth and flew sizzling through the shrieking air. His vicious talons made useless, crippled, grabbing gestures towards them as they scrambled up the last few meters and threw themselves face down on the ridge beside the doctor, their arms covering their heads. Chapter 8 is the final extrapolation from the text. Sarah believes the doctor to be dead, Steyer having hurled him off a cliff. Harry escapes from the scout craft, and as you just heard, Steyer grew to enormous proportions, more so before dying. This all happens in seconds on TV, the doctor not appearing to be dead, and Harry not escaping any robots, and Steyer merely deflating rather than growing. Harry has a comic pratfall in the book, and for those of you who read Doctor Who Meets Scratchman, this idea of Harry as the bumbling hero who wins by accident was very much in Martyr's mind when that story was planned out, too. The Doctor announces that he won the day by pouring Glenlivet into Steyer's probic vent as alcohol. Scotch dissolves Terulian, another Martyr invention. There's a Doctor Who? Yes? Joke on page 123. And this may have been funnier in 1978 than it is now after the Moffat years. But what's no joke is the energy and atmosphere that Martyr invests into the book. It's not the easiest read, and not the most fun read, but it is a stunning achievement. Star, your report? The intelligence? What is this? Your Waterloo, Marshal. Your intelligence mission has been destroyed and your invasion plans are in our hands. One move across the buffer zone, Marshal, and your entire fleet will be destroyed. We shall destroy your planet. What? Without Steyer's report? Next time, Earthling, we shall utterly destroy you. Not today, thank you. Next time on Doctor Who Literature. The Sontaran Experiment was one of the last Hinchcliffe stories to be novelized. The next two season 12 stories... Genesis of the Daleks and Revenge of the Cybermen had already been written. So had every single story from season 13 and the season 14 premiere. The next unwritten TV serial after Sontaran Experiment is in fact season 14's The Hand of Fear. And that's what's next. It's January 1979. It's Terence Dix back again. It is the final story to feature Sarah Jane Smith. And I hate that it's come to this, it's also the last book to feature Sarah Jane Smith. Well, at least until the 20th anniversary specials novelization, but that's a long way off. Join me and, well, I have no idea who, but I will hopefully have some guests next week, because this podcast must live, to discuss another great book with a tremendous cover, Doctor Who and the Hand of Fear. Thank you for joining me on another episode of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast. I'm Jason, your host and editor and producer. Special thanks to my special guest, 
the one and only Bill Evenson. This podcast can be found on most of your podcast apps of choice. You can find all past episodes at anchor.fm slash Doctor Who Lit. It really helps if you rate five stars and subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels, that's DR Who Novels, and under the hashtag Doctor Who Pilgrimage, that's DR Who Pilgrimage, and on email at Doctor Who Literature, that's DR Who Literature at gmail.com. Please drop me a line with your comments, questions, and suggestions. Thank you for listening, and whatever you do, keep turning the pages.